Welcome to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. I'm Jane Donahue. Today we take you to the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor for a talk by former Maine CDC Director Nirav Shaw and Jackson Laboratory Scientific Director Nadia Rosenthal. The title of today's talk is Viruses, the Boundaries Between Humans and Non-Humans. This program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time and it will be archived on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to hear the program again at your convenience and to access many other past Speaking in Maine programs. The program will also be available as a podcast. Thank you all so much. It is such an honor to be back home and to be able to join everybody today. I'm so excited to be back here and so excited to talk about where we think about and how we think about preventing the next pandemic. And most of all, I'm so excited to be here in Bar Harbor on such a glorious day. So thank you all for the warm welcome. It's great to be home. Wonderful. I'm going to prompt Dr. Shaw to give us some of his insights. He's going to treat us to a real insider's view of the current pandemic preparedness efforts on an international scale with anecdotes and vignettes from the hot zone of the CDC. Mm -hmm. So just to start off, <laughs> what do you feel is the most interesting question for you now? You're a, a, a physician, an epidemiologist, just having navigated one of the most pervasive viral pandemics of our time. What is really driving you now? I'd say, Nadia, the, the thing that keeps me up at night is what's next, right? So the question of when there will be another pandemic is, is not a question of if, it really is a question of when, and thus, it's not so much about trying to prepare as much as it is about understanding where that next pandemic will come from. Will it come from a small village in Central Africa? Will it come from a wet market in Southeast Asia? Will it come from one of the jungles of South America? So it is truly a question of when and where. And thus, the question that keeps me up at night is how will we at the CDC be ready to predict, detect, and respond to that event wherever it happens. And we'll talk about over the course of the next hour what some of the factors driving this are, but what really keeps me up at night is when I get an email at 11.30 at night saying, there's a person in the jungles of Brazil that just went into a health clinic with symptoms that don't quite add up. Yeah. Now, 99 times out of 100, that turns out to be something that we know about, typhus or measles or something. But one of those times, it's not going to be something that we have on our diagnostic radar. And when that happens, what will the US CDC do to find out about it, to respond to it, and to keep it from hitting our shores? That's really the task at hand. That's what I focus a lot of my time on. We'll talk more about some of those factors, but that's what keeps me up at night. I mean, truthfully, I sleep like a baby, which, which means I wake up screaming and crying every two hours, <laughs> terrified about what might be coming. And this is, this is truly the reason why. So here in Maine, we feel like we know you personally. Um, after all those NPR, uh, you know, performances, um, we, we, you know, we, we heard the latest news day after day. What is a day in the life of Nirav like now? Um, it, is, it is much different. Uh, so the U.S. CDC 
in many respects is, is you know, it's, it's a large government agency with a portfolio that boggles the mind. I mean, we, we literally address everything from asthma to Zika virus and everything in between, whether it's wildfires contaminating the air in the Northeast or childhood lead poisoning or obesity and heart, you name it. Someone at CDC is doing it and is the world expert in it and doesn't want me telling them how they should do their job. Uh, so a, a, lot of, a lot of what I am tasked with doing is understanding how all the pieces fit together. Um, it will, it will come, come as no surprise to anyone that the CDC went through some really tough times, particularly during COVID-19, and came under, I think, justifiable criticism for not necessarily being as forthright and direct as people deserve to hear from. So a lot of my job is to try to make sure we don't fall back into that trap. But indeed, one of the things in that portfolio that I carry is our preparedness work. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, a lot of the things that we're gonna be talking about today are what I spend a fair chunk of time doing. Um, I'm glad that even though it's a large federal bureaucracy and a, and a massive one at that, uh, the pace of work is still not as frenetic as it was during the pandemic in Maine. Um, all that being said, make no mistake, we miss Maine very much. So what are some of the um, reasons, do you think, why there's this increasing rate of infection? What's going on there? And, uh, you know, in, in general, this pandemic got a lot of press, but it deserved it. It was, it, it, you know, it's a virus that managed to bring down the whole planet, and it's just a little piece of DNA with a candy wrapper of protein. You know, it's, it's uh, hard to imagine how this, how this could have, have really gotten to this proportion that it did. And I'm just wondering, from, from an, an international perspective, how do you see this playing out in, in future responses? How, how does this work? Well, let, let's, you know, that, I'm, I'm so glad you raised that. Let's start with the, the quantitative piece first, because the number, the, the frequency, and the intensity of outbreaks of this nature are increasing. I'll talk in a moment about some of the factors as to why, but just right. as a baseline matter, one of the categories of, of, of virus that we worry a lot about are a category of virus that cause a spectrum of illness that's referred to as viral hemorrhagic fever, which is a fancy way, a, a rather uh, sterile way of saying you show up with the fever and you're bleeding from your eyes and ears. It's, it's not a good thing overall. Um, and and this, is the, this is caused by a family of viruses, the, the likes of which you've heard names of, Ebola, and perhaps others that you may not have heard as much about, like Marburg virus and some others. These are incredibly concerning. And uh, when we hear about even a potential report of a person who might have one single case of this in the Congo or somewhere like that, we'll talk a little bit about what our team does. Mm -hmm. But the number of those outbreaks and the size of them just in the last 20 years has increased substantially. Uh, 20 or 40, 50 years ago, those outbreaks happened and they were like dots on a screen. There were maybe two or three people here, two or three people a thousand miles away, et cetera. That all changed in the early 2000s when the intensity, the size, the frequency of these outbreaks of viral hemorrhagic fever started increasing. The bubbles started becoming bigger and bigger, culminating in a massive outbreak 
that many of us will remember in 2014 in three West African countries of Ebola. But even more recently, just in the last six months, there have been two very large outbreaks of Marburg virus in Africa, one in Equatorial Guinea, the other in Tanzania. These, in, these events are happening more and more frequently. So why? We'll talk more about this, but I'll just enumerate some of the factors right now. Uh, we previously at CDC talked about the three C's that were driving this increase in these types of outbreaks. Uh, number one is, is crowdedness. The, the world is just getting more crowded. Again, we can talk about the, the particular demographic details. It's not just that there are more people, it's where those people are, which takes us to a second piece, connectedness. It's trite to say now, but you can get anywhere in the world within a matter of hours or you know, within a day. And indeed, about 2.75 billion people travel across the world every single year. It's no surprise that any one of those viruses could find their way here. But there's more to connectedness than just travel. Again, we can talk about things like the global food system and how connected that is and what the risks there are. And then the third is convergence. So talking about exploration and human ecology, two things that are central here at COA, the boundary line between humans, animals, and viruses is getting blurrier and blurrier, or more and more porous every mm. single day. Again, we can talk more about that, but suffice it to say, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, the dividing line was quite clear. But now, as cities are getting larger, agriculture is changing in radically different ways, the convergence of humans, animals, and viruses is much closer and much more accelerated. Those are the three classical factors that we talked about at CDC for years. But there's a fourth one now that I think everyone can probably predict. It's a fourth C that has literally turned the temperature up on all three of those other factors, and, and that is, of course, climate change. Uh, gone are the days of, of global warming. We're very much in a phase of global boiling now. And just like any set of reactions, when you increase the temperature, the speed of those reactions increases. So all three of those factors, convergence and connectedness and crowdedness, when you add on the forces of climate change, they are amped up, their intensity is amped up a hundredfold. And so those four factors are conspiring literally against us to cause more and more of these pandemic-style outbreaks. Now, we haven't had one emerge to that magnitude since SARS-CoV-2 three-plus years ago, but it is just a matter of time. So that was my next question. You know, predicting the next pandemic is something that must occupy the CDC constantly. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is a statistical issue. You know, if you, if we know a lot about seismic uh, activity. We know about how we are pretty good at imagining when or where an earthquake might strike. But we can't actually define exactly when every everybody should go home or something. So how do you find the balance between the, the certainty of a pandemic and the uncertainty of the when, where, and how? So our, our goal in that respect is to think about preparing for a pandemic or an infectious disease outbreak in the same manner that we think about predicting the weather. Right? We have magnificently exquisite models of weather patterns 
Now, there, there's a monkey wrench being thrown into those because of climate change. But we, we understand that predicting the weather is a thing that should be done and be accessible to people. We think about pandemic predi prediction models in the same way. Um, there's a trade-off in any type of predictive model. You don't want the model to be so sensitive that it over-predicts such that we are mounting a response every single time someone in a faraway country gets a case of typhoid. That would be an over-prediction. But we also don't want the model to be so delayed or so specific that by the time its certainty reaches 90 or 100 percent, it's too late. Uh, that's similar to what meteorologists have to do with predicting the weather as well. And we're all accustomed to that. We, we get that there is a difference between a 10% chance of rain and a 90% chance of rain. The same thing applies to how we think about pandemics. Um, we have a team of infectious disease experts, mathematicians, um, data scientists, literally a, a team of about 130 or so, whose job it is is to look at these data as they are coming in from different parts of the world, match them up against some of the other factors, and help us at, at, at the leadership level figure out what the appropriate response should be. That's really amazing. I, you know, the CDC is this sort of nebulous entity <laughs> that we all wonder what's actually going on, and it's very exciting to have you here to tell us the details of this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brag about them a little bit. You know, there, there's, a, there's this notion that when something uh, significant is happening in another country, Doctors Without Borders is the first group that's in the door, right? And that's often true, but in the outbreak of Marburg virus in Equatorial Guinea, the CDC was on the ground and set up in six and a half days. We'll call it seven. <laughs> but they, they had a mobile laboratory set up to test blood from potential suspect cases. They had a contract, contact tracing system set up in partnership with the local hospital, and we're already advising the local hospital on how to prevent healthcare workers from getting sick. And that was a, an immediate response that we mounted because we detected it and we, because we had a plan in place for what to do. And again, we were there and set up within seven days of the very first case being, uh, well, the third case, which constitutes an outbreak, of the very third case being detected. So I'm very that's, proud of that. That's spectacular. Mm. Uh, given the porousness of our world and the fact that we'd love to keep these viruses off our shores, but every plane that comes in from wherever, Brazil or mm -hmm. Uganda, uh, is going to you know, give us the opportunity to end up with another pandemic, how, do you, uh, how, do, how does the CDC have, uh, well, what's their idea about how to improve the preparedness, getting ready even on our own shores for something to happen where we just don't have any way of predicting it. So let, let me, let's talk about that factor a little bit, connectedness, and then I'll, I'll talk about what the CDC is doing to, to keep everyone safe. Now, the connectedness piece is, is really, I th well, all of these factors are, are major driving forces, but obviously connectedness is, is a key one. In this day and age, it is possible to get from any point on the planet to any other point on the planet within the incubation period of virtually every threatening infectious disease. That is to say, you could be exposed in one part of the world and travel to any other part of the world before you show a single symptom. And as a result of that, the possibility of spreading these diseases unbeknownst to the traveler 
or unbeknownst to the health authorities is, is very pressing. It's very much there. But it's not just the travel piece, though. Um, another major driving force of, of pandemic spread is our own food system. Um, you know, the United States imports roughly, very roughly, about 50% of the produce that we eat. That produce can carry diseases like hepatitis and things of that nature. Similarly, we import roughly, as a country, about 50% of the seafood uh, that we eat. That, too, can harbor all sorts of viruses and bacteria. And then when it comes to meats, that's a separate set of concerns because of the interconnectedness of the global meat supply. The rising demand for meat itself is driving a lot of these conditions that lead to outbreaks. Tight spaces between animals, particularly pigs and chicken, uh, things of that nature. They're, so I'm going to zoom out for a quick second, then I'll get back into what sure. CDC does. One of the threats that we are particularly concerned about at CDC is a pandemic influenza. We're used to the seasonal influenza every year. You've heard people like me say, go get your flu shot, go get your flu shot. Right? That, is, that is to protect you against the seasonal flu, which migrates across the globe in a fairly predictable pattern every year. But the concern that keeps a lot of folks at CDC up at night is not so much a seasonal flu, but a novel pandemic influenza. And these, these viruses go by a string of letters and numbers, H5N1 and H1N1 and H5N7, et cetera. Um, that category of viruses, they are part of the influenza A family of viruses, have a potential to mutate and, if so, cause another global pandemic on the scale of what we experienced during COVID or on the scale of prior seasonal pandemic flu pandemics in 1918, 1957, and 1968. We've seen this movie before. We've seen the destruction it can cause. And one of the main carriers are things like birds and pigs. You may remember swine flu from a number of years ago. This was a, a virus that spread dramatically and initially amongst pigs and then to humans. It was serious, not categorically deadly, but why wait for the next one? Right now, we are still in the midst of a, basically a global outbreak of avian influenza, which is carried generally by migratory waterfowl, but has the potential to impact our domestic poultry supply or our international poultry supply. We all experienced this back in December, if you recall, when eggs were $7 a dozen. That was in part because so many chickens had died. So these, these, these factors are extremely, they're, they're not, you know, years ago we used to talk about how climate change was going was to be something that was going to happen. And now we talk about it as if, because it is happening now. Pandemic preparedness is the same way. We used to talk about it as something that might happen, but now we talk about it as something that will happen. The CDC does a lot. I'll just focus on the piece that Nadia started with, which is on the travel piece. Um, because travel is a risk, and it is, it is a vector, it is the channel through which some of these viruses and bacteria could come to our shores. We have a series of what are called quarantine stations set up at major 
thoroughfare air airports around the country. And the second that somebody on an airplane reports that they're not quite feeling well, or even before they get on the plane, they are diverted to one of those CDC stations where travelers are screened, put into safe conditions, tested, and made sure that whatever may they may have is not something that we want being unleashed across the country. That's just one of the things we do, in addition to working with airlines to track who's coming in, where they sat, so that if something does happen, we can get on top of it. But this is a concern. It's what the CDC does. But we, of course, need everyone's help and support to be ready. Wonderful. I'm just going to end our soliloquy, and then we can open it up for some questions from the audience with um, your take on the next vaccine, yes. antiviral move to try to keep up with the pandemic as these viruses shift, mutate, become less or more you know, virulent to us. H how does the CDC interact with the medical, biomedical establishment and the f and pharmaceutical establishment? Uh, quite a bit, quite a bit, thankfully. Um, although we are not the, the primary agency involved with that, it, it's often a bit more FDA and BARDA um, our scientists are in very close collaboration with biomedical researchers, uh, particularly on a technology that, that you could undoubtedly give us a master class in, which is mRNA vaccines. Um, as I look back on the pandemic and think about the one thing that, that was a, a shining example, uh, it would, I think, in my book, be the development and deployment of truly revolutionary mRNA-based vaccines. Uh, the vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna in particular. Um, that technology, I think Nadia would agree, is something that we are just in the nascent stages of appreciating, developing, and understanding. The scientists at CDC are, are very closely involved, for example, with respect to developing an mRNA-based vaccine for a pandemic flu. mRNA, in this respect, has a significant advantage. Um, tell me if you can spot the problem with this scenario. Avian influenza is something that affects birds, chickens. The way that right now a lot of flu vaccines are manufactured is by using eggs, which come from... And so in the event of a massive, virulent avian pandemic, our chickens are likely to be taken out, either by the virus or through human culling, which then depletes our supply of eggs, which then limits our ability to make vaccines. That's a problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> mRNA technology does not rely upon the need for millions of eggs to incubate and synthesize the vaccine chain. And thus, right off the bat, a stunning development, and scientists at CDC in our influenza branch are already working very, very closely with at least one manufacturer, to say nothing of scores of researchers, to finesse this technology so that it can be adapted very quickly if one of these avian influenza viruses really starts taking off. I couldn't agree more. It <laughs> was, it was um, astonishing how quickly that technology was activated and mobilized across the planet 
makes me proud to be a scientist. Yes. Anyway, yes. I wonder if you have any last words of wisdom for us Mainers. I know you have a soft spot in your heart for this, uh, for this state. Um, and I know that you've been unbelievably complimentary about the way in which Maine embraces science uh, and doesn't, and, and especially during the pandemic, how when you asked us to stay home, we did. I remember when you said that. Um, it made me very proud to be in Maine. Any last words before we open it up for questions about your vision for Maine in the future and how we are going to specifically benefit from your wisdom as we <laughs> hit the next pandemic? Well, I don't, I don't know about that last piece. <laughs> I'm not, I don't want to <laughs> overstate the situation, but let's, let's first start by recognizing the spectacular job that we as Mainers did. Right. We're here today in this tent because we all did the hard work two, three years ago of staying safe, getting vaccinated, and getting ready to get back out there. I mean, this is a consequence of our good work. Um, and so I want everyone to recognize that and be proud of the state <coughs> that you're in because we did an amazing job. That foundation of trust is something that will serve Maine well when the next one hits. Now, the next one might be another virus. It might be a catastrophe related to climate change. It might be something completely different. But in my book, what separates communities, uh, what separates communities that handle crises well from those that don't, fundamentally to me comes down to trust. Trust in one another, trust in institutions, and Maine, dem <coughs> Maine demonstrated that we trust one another. And thus, in my book, we are well-equipped to handle what will inevitably be coming our way again soon. Well, that is a great way to segue uh, into uh, enough time to answer all the questions that you may have for Dr. Shaw. Please, um, there is the microphone. There are some hands up. Sean is going to and his helpers are going to get that to you. Hi, Doc. Hello. Two things. First of all, many of us during the pandemic were alone, and I just want, like, literally alone 24-7. And I just want to thank you because your voice, literally your voice, just your vocal inflection and the way that you spoke to us was like a blanket. It was like a comfort teddy bear. Um, I can't count how many times I, I kind of felt like I got through the day because of you. Um, and that's just real. But segueing back to what you just said about trust, I think one of the hardest things f for me, um, and maybe for others, about trust is that I inherently do not trust Big Pharma. Yeah. So th there's just so much that's wrong with it. And so when you're hearing these ads, you need to do this, you need to do that. You know that people are making billions of dollars at the expense of others, and that's hard to trust. Yeah. So I just wondered if you could address that. Well, well first of all, I'm going to try to keep it together up here. Um, <laughs> but um, thank you. That um, really means a lot to me. Um, really, truly, thank you. Um, yeah. Um, you're right to be skeptical. Uh, of anything anyone is telling you, 
whether it's someone from Big Pharma, someone from the government, someone from wherever, you're absolutely right to be skeptical um, and question their motives and such. You're not going to hear me be an apologist for government, pharma, or anyone else out there. You have an obligation to ask tough questions and determine whether the answers that you get pass the smell test. For me, I go into these conversations, when, whether it's about big pharma, with a simple question in mind, which is, do I think the data are there? Do I think the data that they've put forth are compelling? And do I think, for example, they're not showing us all the data? Are they hiding something? I kick the tires really aggressively myself because I think we've got an, uh, we've got an obligation to. In fact, just, just a week ago, my mom called me and said that her doctor wants her to take this fancy new medicine for her cholesterol. And I said, I, I don't know, mom. Like, really? Like, what, uh, why? What's, what's going on with this? Let's look at the data. Just because you saw an ad uh, in a magazine doesn't mean you, you know. I, so I have that same degree of, of, of skepticism, as we all should. But what I try to do in those situations is set forth the questions that I would want to have answered to change my mind. And if and when those questions are answered for me in a satisfactory manner, then I'm in. And for me, when it came to things like the vaccines, we all had those questions. Were they rushed? Boy, I thought vaccines took a decade to make. How did you make this one in a year? What's going on there? I asked those same questions, but when I saw the data, and I saw that it was all the data, not just a subset of it, then I was on board. There's one other piece I'm going to mention, though. Um, because this is really important. Someone asked me <clears throat> once, hey, Nirav, how do, you, how do you know the vaccines work? And I, and it was a really good question because I, I, wasn't, I didn't do the research. I'm not a vaccine researcher. I wasn't involved in the clinical trials. I, I don't even really know any scientists who were directly involved. And what I realized was that I knew the vaccine <clears throat> worked because I trusted the people who were involved. And, and really what I mean there is that I'm part of a chain of trust. I grew up with people in schools, with people that went on to become vaccine researchers. And so even though I wasn't involved, I'm part of a chain of trust with people who I inherently do trust who then were involved with the research. And so when the research came out, even though it may have been part of Big Pharma, I trusted the people that do that. The reason I say that is that a lot of those who are inherently opposed to whether it's vaccines or climate change or what have you, it's not that they are, I, I don't condescend to them because they are part of a completely different chain of trust. They're part of a chain of trust that didn't study biotechnology or medicine. They, they heard something that conformed to their notions of the world through a completely different chain of trust. And so when, when we think about those who disagree, I've always tried to keep in mind that it's not that they don't know the facts or that if I could just show them this one research paper, they would change their mind. It's much deeper than that. It's that they are part of a completely different chain of trust. And if I, have, if I wanna have any hope of getting them to see the world the way I do, I've gotta become part of their world. And that's how I've always thought about it. So, Thank you for that question. Sorry for the long answer, but it great. it's spot on. Totally. Hi, Dr. Shaw. Um, I have a question about the intersection between disease control and the crowding sea. 
Um, so what on a federal level is being done preemptively or can be done to address things like population density, housing insecurity, and homelessness at the national level, but also at the international level? Great. What, what a great question. Thank you so much. I, I'm going to start with the international side. I, I mentioned earlier that it's not simply that there are more people in the world, although that is a, a factor. We're at roughly 8 billion people right now, and projections suggest that in or around 2050, 2055, we'll be at 10 billion people. It, it's not so much the increase, though. It's the composition of that increase. It's where people are. Much of that population growth is happening in countries that were previously sparsely populated and thus coming into encroachment with bats, jungles, livestock, things of that nature. So that's one element of the change. The other element is the growth, literally the growth and figuratively the growth of megacities. Uh, cities that have over 20 million people, 25 million people, Shanghai, Dhaka, uh, Lagos, Delhi, countries of uh, cities of that nature are literal hotbeds for viruses jumping from animals to humans. Um, we are already starting to see it, and undoubtedly it will happen more, partly because food production is starting to become localized in megacities in what can only be described as gut-wrenching conditions. Uh, ponds where there are tilapia, where ducks and pigs are on the periphery, surrounded by scores of people. It is a spillover event waiting to happen. So uh, th those two factors are, I think, the two principal driving factors of the emergence of the next pandemic. Um, what, what can be done about that? Internationally, it's very, very difficult, make no mistake. Domestically, you put your finger on some things that we can do to steel ourselves against what might be coming our way. Housing is key among them. That is undoubtedly a challenge in Maine. Uh, we saw during the, the pandemic, lower income individuals often lived in multi-generational crowded households and thus unfortunately became affected with COVID at higher rates, at least initially until we put up a system in place. The best thing that we can do in these regards is to make sure folks have those basic necessities, housing, food, security, safety at work, so that when something comes our way, the chances of it spilling over at least go down. Uh, what is the reality of uh, the development of a human by, uh, vaccine for Lyme and for appropriate treatment other than doxycycline, especially for long-term Lyme or neurologic Lyme, you know, after when it is discovered in the first month or two? Mm -hmm. uh, so Lyme disease and, and the related tick-borne illnesses are very much on the rise. I mean, when we think about climate, and some of the factors I mentioned, climate, crowding, things of that nature, even here in Maine, you don't have to go far. In fact, I, I met a student just this morning here who is grappling with anaplasma uh, as we speak. So you don't have to go far in Maine. Um, the interesting thing about the Lyme vaccine is that there was a Lyme vaccine. Actually, it's a pretty good vaccine, but it had, like many things, it had some drawbacks. Um, it suffered a ignominious decline, and, and I think as a result of that, the, the pharma companies uh, and, and many of the, in the biotech sector are a little gun-shy about going back into that breach. Uh, all that said, there is a really, it re I mean, and, and as you likely know, there are already such vaccines for, for animals and livestock. The human side is challenging uh, for a number of reasons. Um, 
right now, I, I think it's, it's largely about the market making sure that there would be uptake of the vaccine to say nothing of payment. I, I, there are some interesting technologies underway. Uh, we at CDC have a, a gentleman in our Fort Collins, Colorado office named Dr. Lyle Peterson, who is really just the guru when it comes to Lyme disease and tick-borne, and he's briefed us on what's in the pipeline. There are some, some exciting vaccines. I, I can't speak on the treatment as much. There are some things in the works, but I, I, don't, I think they're, they're still a ways away. Thank you so much. Uh, very illuminating uh, comments. Could you comment additionally on the scientific efforts with other organizations outside the United States and your coordination with them, and particularly on what you mentioned about the trust chain and lack of chain? If we don't trust them, then we can't work with them, but they're very good scientists in other places, not just the United States. Yes. What a wonderful question. Um, to encapsulate the gentleman's question, it's, it's how do we work with organizations internationally, particularly when trust may not be there? Um, I'll first start by saying our mantra is, is trust but verify in that respect. Uh, there's, um, you know, there's a saying that you maybe have heard, which is, um, in God we trust, but everyone else has to show us your data. And so when, when we're working with uh, an entity in another country where we are not necessarily sure whether what we are hearing is what matches what our disease modelers are putting forth, we ask to see the data. It's a challenge, make no mistake, because the incentives in many parts of the world are to downplay what might be happening within their borders, rather than call up another country, let alone the US. All that said, it's a, it's a relationship that takes time to foster. Uh, we, we, have, we have work to do, and have been doing work, to make sure that when a country calls us to say that there is a concerning situation unfolding within their borders, a biological situation, the folks who pick up the phone at the CDC are not gonna run to the New York Times and tell them what's going on. We're going to work with them to understand it and characterize it so we can get them assistance rather than shame or opprobrium. We work very closely with the WHO in that regard. The WHO is, in this respect, a neutral arbiter. Uh, and, and they are they're, they're, they're a, a good and transparent broker for when the US needs to collaborate with countries who may have otherwise been gun shy about calling us. We are on the phone with them, uh, our teams are, multiple times throughout the day. And then when something does unfold in a country, we're in very close contact with our embassy there, our, our mission there, as well as the Ministry of Health. You know, a principle that we have to abide is that we can only do what the country asks us to do. We are not colonialists in that regard. So we have to be very careful in making sure we are being responsive to what the country needs. But then, and critical to your question, is when we leave, we want to leave the country in a better place than we found it. That's a fancy way for saying capacity building. We want to make sure that we're not just swooping in, solving an issue, and then swooping out. The laboratory that I told you that we stood up in six and a half days in Equatorial Guinea, it's still there. We trained people in Equatorial Guinea to run PCR tests in that laboratory. And as last I heard, they're still doing that. So when we go into countries, part of our proposition is let us help you now, and then let us help you get set up for the future. 
so is this on? So you've spoken about um, emerging diseases or emerging threats in Equatorial Guinea, in Congo, and Uganda. And the narrative is not alarmist, but I think you're inviting concern. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And so how, um, what are you doing to make sure that those narratives don't also reinforce racist and xenophobic stereotypes that immigrants, and especially immigrants of color, um, are dirty and unsafe? What a great question. Let me, um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna take it head on, because the risk that you raise is undoubtedly true. Um, we, we talk about the diseases and not the individuals who harbor them, but let me, let me be even, even more direct, and this is a, a point that I'm, your, your question allows me to elaborate upon. There, there is this notion that many of the diseases that I've referred to or the categories of diseases are uniquely phenomena of far-flung places. And indeed, CDC's goal is to try to keep those diseases at bay. But make no mistake, some of the concerning ones are already here. So to your, directly to your point, there, there, there is a risk of engendering xenophobia. I, I, can, I, I agree to that. But it's, in, it's, it's important for me in, in that connection to point out that some of the concerning diseases that we're really worried about are already here on our shores. I've mentioned avian influenza affecting our birds, not humans, but it's a risk. Not just birds, but mammals and, and, other, and other animals. Um, just a month ago, uh, we, we detected a very, an outbreak of a very concerning fungus, a fungal infection, affecting individuals who had traveled for surgery coming back to the U.S. Um, about a year and a half ago, a group of our disease detective trainees, uh, a program that we, we have that's been around for 60 years called the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Uh, this is where we train disease detectives. A team of them identified for the first time in the United States a bacteria uh, called Burkholderia. It causes a disease called melioidosis. Uh, they identified that bacteria for the first time in the United States, a bacteria that was previously thought to exist only in certain parts of South and Southeast Asia. Um, these diseases are already here, and they are already affecting the United States. Uh, one that we are all, uh, another fungus that we are particularly concerned about is a fungus that is resistant to a number of organisms. Uh, it goes by the name Candida, Candida auris. We're very concerned about that, particularly insofar as it can affect healthcare. So these diseases are already here. And you're right, I, I did focus on the international locations where we're trying to prevent them from coming here. Uh, but there are, many of them are already here. So thank you for that question. I'm another one to thank you, Dr. Shah. It's a pleasure to see you in person as well. Um, this question, uh, basically is how bulletproof is the CDC? And I'm gonna make it sound a little political okay. when I uh, bring up a metaphor, which is that our next, uh, our next pandemic may be in 2024. Uh, <laughs> how, how, do you <laughs> how, how do you reassure us uh, that your fine work uh, in the, under the current circumstances is able to go forward. Uh, thank, thank you for your, your thoughts, sir, and I, I appreciate your question. I'm, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Um, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, the way that, the way that I, I think about it is um, 
what's, what's really important for folks to know is that uh, of the 11 or 12,000 scientists and experts that we have at the CDC, uh, to say nothing of the, 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 the scores of contractors and support staff we have, um, with the exception of the director and maybe a few of, of her key staff, communications and chief of staff, the positions at the CDC are not political appointments. Uh, indeed, it's, it's only just coming up in 2025 that the CDC director will even need to be confirmed by the Senate. For most of the agency's existence, it was thought that the CDC director should be someone whom the president could appoint without needing to go through the Senate to preserve the scientific integrity and independence of the agency. And, and that fact, the, the fact that the legions of CDC scientists, who are the ones that are really doing the work, those positions are not political. They are not ones that can be moved out irrespective of the administration. Those are scientists who have been there for 10, 20, 30 years, and they are dedicated to their craft, again, irrespective of who might be hanging out el elsewhere. So I, I've, got, I've got good faith in the ability of the CDC to continue its core mission, notwithstanding the political winds shifting. I thank you very much for coming here and the excellent discussion. But one thing that I would like to ask you that's not on your title is about bacteria, in particular, antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So my question is, number one, I know they're doing a lot of things to prevent it, but should it happen, could that get out of control and kill millions of people? And is the technology being developed for viruses like the quarantine you mentioned, for aircraft coming into the country, and also the mRNA technology? Could that be used to rapidly detect and then create vaccines for a new pathogen that emerges? Th that is an excellent question, sir, and you're, you're right. I didn't, I didn't touch on one of the other factors driving this, but that's antibiotic resistance. I'll connect it very briefly uh, before answering your question to the broader discussion about the global food chain. Uh, as, as many of you are well aware, antibiotics are routinely used or overused in, in industrial agriculture, whether it's within chickens, in swine, uh, or in, in cattle. Antibiotic use is has exploded, and the consequences are are we still haven't really appreciated. I don't think the full consequences of the immense amount of antibiotic use that occurs, particularly in, in industrial large-scale farming. That is one factor, a very powerful factor, driving the emergence of antibiotic resistance. The other factors include overuse, improper use, things of that nature. So you're absolutely right to to spotlight it, and thank you for doing so. Um, what can be, what is being done? There, there are some optimistic signs on the horizon, and then I'm actually gonna turn to Nadia for the scientific piece, but one of the things that the CDC has been doing for years is working with hospitals and pharmacists in particular around uh, what we call antibiotic stewardship. Using the right drug for the right bug at the right time, et cetera. And up until the pandemic, our, we'd actually made really significant progress. Um, 94, 95% of healthcare institutions, hospitals in the country were following CDC's best practices for not using, overusing, et cetera. Um, the pandemic threw a lot of that off kilter. 
for a lot of reasons. So we've got work to do, and indeed that team's, one of their tasks is to get back on track um, uh, toward, those, toward those efforts. But there's another promising set of avenues, which is on the development side, developing new antibiotics, although that starts getting into an arms race. We develop a new antibiotic, the bacteria continue to evolve, so on and so forth ad infinitum. I'm gonna turn to Nadia for what may be going on with respect to emerging technologies there. I think the, um, the wave of research that went on during the pandemic to develop and disseminate the RNA-based vaccines is an extraordinary leap. It really was a quantum leap in the way we handle the whole question of pathogens. Um, the reason it's so important, just for those of you who are not scientists, is that, as you heard, you don't need a million eggs to make an RNA vaccine. All you need is information about the actual viral sequence, the genomic sequence in that little candy wrapper. Once you know what the distinguishing feature of that sequence is that's making the virus capable of recognizing a human cell versus a bat cell, you can start to develop the vaccine against which your body will react to be ready for the encroaching virus. It's seen that sequence, it's seen that shape, it knows that shape, and it activates the immune system against it before the virus can get a hold of you and your cells and really start replicating. So why is that important? In the old days, making proteins, which is what the old form of vaccines are, was long-winded, took the eggs, took a lot of work. Making nucleic acid, which is DNA, RNA, the stuff that we call the, the genetic basis of life, is something that since the last 20 years, we've become incredibly good at making new and different sequences of that material very, very rapidly. So as soon as a virus emerges, including the new Omicron that might be floating around right now, the scientists who are actually making vaccines rapidly grab that, probably working with the CDC, get that information, sequence that genetic material out of that virus, and start to analyze how quickly they can develop an antiviral vaccine uh, uh, sort of protocol that will actually be different from the previous vaccine, which is why we're always asking people to boost so that you can get the newest version against the newest variant. This is science fiction. It really is. For those of us who remember how long it took to make a vaccine, you know, I've mentioned the fact that it could take years. We're down to weeks, which is extraordinary. So really, then it just becomes a question of production. How fast can you make it? How fast can you disseminate it? And we were just talking this morning about possible ways in which industry is now thinking of making vaccines that could conceivably be transported without having to be cold. Remember, the, the vaccines were always worried about, are they cold? Supposing you could have a vaccine that would stand withstand room temperature situations or even different, you know, heated situations, getting that vaccine out of our air-conditioned state would mm -hmm. be a lot easier, and we would have the opportunity to move much more rapidly. Mm -hmm. And indeed, that's something that um, JAX has been working on with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases down at NIH 
to figure out how we can best make the models, the mouse models, that will be appropriate for testing those vaccines. You make the vaccine, you don't want to just jam it into people. You want to know whether it will cure a mouse first. And so that's something that we're also working on. Which mouse, which vaccine, which bug, for which drug? But, sir, your, your question about antibiotic resistance is, is quite poignant. Um, it raises the specter of a world in which something as simple as a basic surgery could be fatal. Um, and that is, a, that is a disturbing world. About bats mm -hmm. and other wildlife. Yes. And our relationship to the wild, if you will, is a tendency to demonize bats already. Mm -hmm. And now, as a proposed real vector for diseases that affect us, there's even more concern about should, yeah. Mm -hmm. So w how do you deal with this intersection between protecting biodiversity? Mm -hmm. It isn't just bats. It's bats and raccoon dogs. It's the wet markets. It's yes. the yeah. wild animals that are now coming in contact with people, largely through our eating them, yes. that is causing problems. What do you think are solutions? Yes, I, I'll, um, the, the question was concerns the very appropriate uh, notion of the, or the intersection between our efforts to stave off the next pandemic, but balancing them with our obligation to conserve animal and wildlife resources. Uh, as you said, ma'am, we, we don't want to demonize bats, to, to use your words, and I, I concur. So how do we balance the need to avoid interactions with bats that may cause spillover events with the need or the avoidance of unduly encroaching upon their, uh, you know, their territory? How do we balance that? Um, so in, in our view, it is very much about the responsible interaction with that wildlife. One example in particular that, that, I'm, that I'm quite fascinated by, there's another virus out there uh, called the Nipah virus. And I didn't mention it yet, I it, but it's another one in the catalog of, of things that, that keeps me up screaming and crying at night. And it is, it is the, the virus is transmitted, at least nominally, to humans through bats, but often through exposure to their droppings. And in many parts of the world, that occurs during the production of molasses from palm sugar. And the, the, palm, the palm syrup, the sap, is put into giant vats. And the bats, of course, fly over and occasionally may leave their droppings in it. And then that, gets, that can get transmitted to humans. We need not eradicate bats in that situation. Doing so would be an ecological disaster. Because as you say, they have a vital place. So the approach that the scientific community is taking is to make those interactions safer. Covering up the sap while it is boiling <laughs> is, is a simple way to avoid the contamination and thus a way to reduce the likelihood of a Nipah virus emerging from that type of spillover event. So I think our approach is, again, not to demonize, uh, is, is to encourage responsible interactions, but at the same time recognize that it's often humans that are the ones that are being irresponsible, encroaching on those territories, and thus engendering more spillover events. Uh, we, we, ha we, this is, it's an imperative that we have to agree to, to avoid those types of situations at the interface between animals and humans, because where that interface exists, we will invariably see more spillover events.
You've been listening to Speaking in Maine on Maine Public Radio. Today's program featured a talk by former Maine CDC Director Nirav Shah and Jackson Lab Scientific Director Nadia Rosenthal, who recently spoke at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. If you missed part of the program or want to listen again, you can also find it on our website, mainepublic.org. Click on radio to access this program and many other archived Speaking in Maine programs. Music in this hour comes from Our Alarm Clock. Susan Tran is the executive producer of Speaking in Maine, and Speaking in Maine is produced by Sam Tracy and me, Jane Donahue. Thanks for joining us. This is Maine Public Radio.